first episode of That's So Hindu for 2023. In this episode, I'm speaking with Professor Jeffrey D. Long, who teaches religion and Asian studies at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania. This is his second time on the show. Today, we're discussing a recent paper he's written on the connections between deep ecology and Advaita Vedanta. Hey, Jeff, thanks for coming back on the show. Um, what caught my attention this time in your work was a paper in the Journal of Dharma Studies. It was published last September, I think. It was titled Advaita Vedanta and the Implications for Deep Ecology. From the title of those two topics, you know, that, that's pretty close to my heart. It's like you, you wrote that title just for me, just said, you, th- this is the person that wants to read this. You know, I've built my career around these things. When reading your paper, there were a number of passages I highlighted I wanted to ask you about. You know, most listeners of the show don't need any introduction to, you know, Vedanta. But deep ecology is probably a new term. You, you write, quote, deep ecology is a holistic approach to environmental issues. Rather than seeing ecology only as a branch of, branch of the biological sciences, deep ecology is a philosophical approach that sees human treatment of the environment as part of a total worldview. Can you expand on that? What is that total worldview? Certainly, yes. So uh, deep ecology, uh, the simplest way to put it is that it's premised on the uh, view that ideas matter. And so when we talk about human interaction with the environment, with the physical environment, with the the whole ecosphere, uh, what we do as human beings uh, is not something that's merely mechanical or that uh, uh, it's not something that we where we can just automatically assume, well, we're human beings, we're going to behave toward the environment in such and such a way. Whatever we do with the environment is a consequence of values, uh, and those values are part of our larger belief systems. And all of the all of this is implicated in how we address, how we treat the environment. So someone who sees, for example, as much of the modern world does, uh, the environment as essentially dead matter or raw material to do with as we wish, uh, is going to approach the environment very differently from someone who sees the earth as a goddess, for example, or who sees everything as being infused with life and that all of that life has value. Uh, that Those are very different worldviews uh, from what has become predominant in the modern world. So from the perspective of deep ecology, it is insufficient simply to look at the environmental impacts of many of our current behaviors and then try in some way to correct for those. That may be broadly what we could call environmentalism. Deep ecology says the real root of the problem, and of course the assumption is there is a problem, we are in a crisis. Uh, The root of the problem is in our entire approach to life and that our worldviews, our belief systems, and the way we live these out uh, have to be addressed if we really want to get to the root of the environmental crisis. So that that's it in a nutshell. Uh, much more can be said. It's an entire field of study. But it's basically saying uh, it's it's looking not only at our behavior, but why do we behave the way we do? What are our deeper values and how do those translate into behaviors that impact the environment? Uh, when did the term deep, deep ecology come about? Uh, it emerged from out of a conference in, I'm forgetting the exact date, but I believe this was in the early 1970s. And uh, the idea was uh, to somehow come up with a term that would capture uh, this idea that we have to look at the problem holistically and think in terms of worldviews and belief systems, religions, and so on. 
Uh, and uh, there were a number of scholars, philosophers who were engaged in this uh, process of thinking. And the term deep ecology emerged from their activities. When it comes to Advaita, there's sometimes an interpretation that that seems to emphasize the unreality of the world and can lead to a bit of a a detachment or a, a detachment in a in a in a practical sense when it comes to environmental issues. At least that's the accusation. Um, I'm going to paraphrase for listeners two paragraphs, and forgive me if I'm skipping over some of this because I've got it written out in front of me and it's long, and people can go back to the paper and read the exact thing. You're right. The worldview of Advaita Vedanta is not confined to the realm of human life. All of existence is one. The self-same empathy, which is the experience of oneness that grounds an ethos which affirms the fundamental dignity and indeed divinity of all human beings, extends to all beings. It thus gives a conceptual grounding to work carried out for the sake of environmental justice. Can you go into that and address those concerns of people that say, well, you know, Advaita is world denying. World denying seems to be the phrase that comes back to me several times. Right, right. Yeah, so that, that very that very famous verse, um, Brahma Satya Jagannitya, right? That uh, Brahman is the truth, the world is a delusion, right? That this um, would on its surface seem to be the ultimate in world denial. Uh, but as many Advaitins will tell you, uh, what is denied in Advaita Vedanta is not the reality of the world, but it is the reality of the world as we perceive it. In other words, what we are perceiving is incomplete and therefore distorted. Uh, the reality is Brahman. The reality is infinite being consciousness and bliss. And we perceive that as this vast world, this multiverse is a term that's become more popular recently, uh, this vast cosmos. Uh, and then, of course, just on our own tiny planet, uh, the whole array of beings, uh, including ourselves. Uh, all of this is a manifestation of the infinite Brahman. And so uh, it, it, one has to be very careful about how uh, we're placing emphasis then when we talk about the world being a delusion. It, what, it, what it means is that there is vastly more to the world than meets the eye. Right? It is not simply what it appears to be on the surface, that there is an infinite consciousness of which this world is an expression. So uh, if we are able to perceive as it were, Brahman through the world, through the medium of the world, our experience of the world is radically transformed. So um, one of my favorite passages from the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad is uh, when the sage Yagnavalkya is about to go off and become a sannyasi. He's uh, leaving behind his two wives, and he's telling one of them that he has already ensured uh, their welfare. He's already looked out for their uh, material well-being, so they'll be okay when he leaves. And uh, his wife, uh, Katyayani, says, uh, uh, well, if you if you leave behind your material wealth, I'll simply be another wealthy person. But I want your true wealth. Right. I want your wisdom. And so he begins to teach her. And uh, of course, in the moment uh, in which they're both existing, he's about to depart and uh, follow his path of, of spiritual wisdom. And so he says the husband is dear to you. Not so much for his own sake, but because of the Atman within. And then he says, the wife is dear, not so much for the wife's sake, but because of the Atman within. And then there's this long litany of children and animals and uh, different groups within society and, and the whole world that he describes. 
And for each entity he discusses, he says, this entity is, is not dear so much for its own sake, but because of Brahman within. So if you listen to it on one level, it could sound as if he's devaluing all of these things, saying the Atman is really all that matters, right? The, this highest self this, that is ultimately identical with Brahman, uh, that's all that matters. But what he's saying is that things matter because of Brahman within them, right? The, that that highest self that is within all beings uh, is what gives them value. That when we perceive beauty, when we experience goodness, uh, we are experiencing that infinite reality through the medium of this world, right? So um, in the modern uh, Advaita tradition, there's there's a very famous uh, expression and in fact, in in uh, in my own tradition, there's a book with this title, "Seeing God Everywhere." God referring here to Brahman, to that highest self. And so, from this perspective, Advaita Vedanta is not devaluing the world, but it's giving, as it were, a metaphysical explanation for why the world is valuable. Right? What is value? Well, value is that which partakes of the infinite, and in fact, everything uh, does that ultimately. So, the way to approach the world is as an unfolding, uh, a manifestation of that infinite reality. And we want to see beyond it. The world is not an end in itself, you could say. Uh, but we do not regard it as, say, mere material, right? It is the manifestation of, of Brahman, of the infinite. If you look at the Vishishtadvaita tradition, uh, the, the cosmos is the body of the infinite, right? So uh, we, this, this earth, you could say is like the flesh and bones of the divine. Uh, so there's, there's justification for greatly valuing the world. The detachment part comes in, uh, in terms of how we might, uh, view ourselves in relation to any particular phenomenon that we experience. There's also a realization that phenomena are temporary. They pass away. And so that if we invest all of our happiness in them, we are inevitably going to suffer. Of course, this is a great insight of Buddhism, but it's also a central insight of Advaita Vedanta. So while we appreciate the world as a manifestation of the infinite, we want to keep our focus on the infinite and uh, not be, as it were, deluded by the manifestation. Uh, and so... Uh, this is all very different uh, from the perspective which, again, sees the earth as something like a raw material that is there to fulfill our desires, right? Our materialistic desires. And uh, the, the Advaita worldview, uh, in a sense, you could say involves a sacralization of the world, or a sanctification of the world, because it is the manifestation of the infinite. Uh, so uh, the emphasis that we see quite rightly in many Advaitic texts on detachment and renunciation is something that can be read, unfortunately, as uh, um, reducing, say, the earth itself uh, to something of little importance. But I think that really decontextualizes that understanding. Um, I, I think that the, a, a deep ecological interpretation of Advaita Vedanta is more in keeping with the aims and goals of the tradition. What do you say then to those people that are saying you're that interpretation is fine. You can have that interpretation, but you're really sort of taking liberties with the teachings. If you go back into Hindu texts, there are some things that are environmentally specific, I think, but there's plenty of 
applying of principles logically to current phenomena. I certainly do that in my work. So, so what, do, what, do you, what do you say to those people who say, oh, you're, you're really taking liberties and you should go back to the text? And none of this actually says this. So why are you reading that into it? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are plenty of places where it does say that, uh, in fact. And, uh, uh, you know, if, if you look uh, to uh, our oldest texts, right, to, to the uh, Rig Veda, for example, um, the entire focus is on the divine beings who are manifest as natural phenomena. So that there is a thoroughly ecological world in which uh, the ancient Vedic culture was existing. Uh, the act of yagna, right? The act of, of uh, sacrifice and, and uh, ritual uh, is, uh, I, I think it embodies a deep ecological recognition that for anything that we want from the earth, we have to give something back, right? That uh, we are, uh, utilizing the earth for uh, our food. Uh, it's, it's where we live. Uh, we need things like shelter uh, and so on. And uh, in order to rightly utilize all of that, we have an obligation to also give something back. So when we are enjoined to give yagya, to give offering to the devas, uh, it is a recognition that we're not self-sufficient, that uh, whatever we take from the earth, whatever energies we consume, we need to give something back. We're part of a total system, right? And this total system is ritta, this ordering of the world. Uh, later on, the term dharma uh, comes to be preferred in the tradition. Uh, this concept that we are integral to it and that we have obligations connected with it, I think is is very uh, deeply embedded in the tradition, uh, as is the idea of the natural world, uh, that we are um, in this phenomenal level, right? Not on the absolute level of Brahman, but within this realm of relative truth, we are part and parcel of this natural world. And we have obligations within it. And that that dharma, that obligation, uh, is uh, it runs through the entire tradition. So I don't really think it is a departure. I think that uh, we have to always be mindful of the context uh, to which the various texts are directed. And uh, yes, when we're talking about someone's individual spiritual life, for example, uh, in a world where we often become very addicted to certain objects and certain activities and those become distractions, then yes, this attitude of complete detachment is absolutely warranted. But even that is very ecological, you know, if you think about the implications of it, because uh, the more we indulge uh, in the sensory world, the more we are taking an effect from the earth. Uh, the, the more simply we live, the more ecologically conscious we, we actually are, the more responsible uh, we become. Uh, so a life of relative detachment, a life of asceticism uh, is one where we're having a minimal environmental impact as well. Now, yes, I think your point is valid if you know we're putting the cart before the horse if we say that our main end is to have a low environmental impact, therefore we're going to live this kind of ascetic lifestyle. No, the whole point of the lifestyle is the transformation in consciousness, which it's meant to effect. And that is what Advaita Vedanta is aiming for. All of the teachings are aimed at transforming our consciousness. A part of that transformation, though, is how we relate to the world. And are we primarily takers or are we primarily givers? And uh, I think this theme of yagna really is a very powerful one when we think in those terms. We're uh, being asked to give back for everything we take to give something back. One final point 
that I that was jumping out at me that seems to be a good place to end on. I like to end on giving people things to think about and that they can bring away from the podcast. You write to protect the earth, a service which may not necessarily benefit oneself directly, but it will be of enormous help to future generations is an excellent example of SEVA, of selfless service pursued in a spirit of attachment for the result. I do this not for myself, but because it is good, because it is Dharma. Can you unpack that sort of bridge? It seems like you're bridging the spiritual and the practical right there. Can you uh, go into that a little bit? Yes, precisely. And in fact, this is very intimately connected with the practice of karma yoga as described by Swami Vivekananda, um, who uh, in his classic formulation, he says, we serve God in the form of the suffering beings in the world. And through this service, we cultivate a spirit of what he calls self-abnegation, right? This is a way of attenuating and overcoming the ego by putting the good of others before our very own. And I think that by helping to preserve the environment, that type of seva is a great example of, of an ego-detached seva because unless we're reborn back in this world, um, when, you know, uh, at, at some time in the immediate future, uh, we are doing this for future generations. We are doing this not for our present self, uh, but for others, for those who will come after us. And so uh, this is a great example of, of detached action because uh, you're not going to be around to see the fruit of it. Uh, now, again, you know, the, the ways of karma are, are mysterious. We might be among the future generations in some future incarnation and be grateful to our current selves for preserving that environment. But uh, let's say that doesn't happen. Let's say we're reborn in some other space or some other time or we achieve moksha, which is the goal. Uh, we have nevertheless left behind a legacy uh, of service for the beings that are going to come next. And uh, by doing this, we're attenuating the ego. We're coming closer to that sense of the true self, the Atman uh, within. And the beings that we're serving may not have even been born yet. but that. That doesn't matter. What matters is the service, how it transforms us spiritually. Uh, the, the critics of this perspective would say, well, but then you're saying the protection of the environment itself is maybe just kind of incidental to this spiritual process. That may be, but if you pursue it you know, with true dedication, the result is the same, right? The, you, you, you protect the environment and hopefully you get moksha at the end of it as well. So this path is one which does not see serving the world as some kind of distraction or even as a preliminary purification process, but really integral to uh, the elimination of ego, which is uh, really the necessary condition uh, for getting jnana, for getting the true knowledge of the self that arises when that ego passes away. So uh, I think environmental work is, is a great form of seva, and it's one uh, to which we're rather urgently called in the current situation of the world. Great. Where can people read more of your work? I found this paper on academia, academia.edu. Um, I suppose people can search for it online. Um, and this is the that chance for you to say, you know, what you're doing, what you're up to, and uh, what can we expect next? Okay, very good. Well, academia.edu is a good place to find a lot of my work. Uh, uh, many of these things are otherwise sort of, you know, buried in journals or as chapters of edited volumes. Uh, 
that you know one can find, but uh, you'll, you'll find a lot of it all in one place uh, on academia.edu. Uh, I do have some books as well that have been published, and those are available through uh, the publishers or Amazon.com or uh, uh, Flipkart uh, or you know any of the variety of other uh, online booksellers. Uh, and of course, you you have your traditional bookstores as well. So uh, I have a book on the Jane tradition, uh, which came out quite a while ago, 2009. Uh, most one of my most recent books is on Hinduism in America. That's a paperback, fairly easily affordable and pretty easily obtainable uh, online. And uh, I'm working on several things right now. Uh, I have an introduction to Indian philosophy that I'm hoping to have out by the end of this year. And uh, that'll also be in paperback and uh, readily available. Uh, and uh, well, two other books uh, kind of in the pipeline, um, one on the Upanishads and their reception through the years. And if you want a kind of overview of that, uh, I did uh, uh, a talk for the Theosophical Society, which you can find online on YouTube. And uh, uh, that's a, a, an overview of what I'm going to be doing in that particular book. Uh, I've signed a contract with Rutledge also for a book on the Buddha, uh, the Buddha specifically as a peacemaker, uh, the implications of his teachings for uh, for world peace. And uh, well, and then finally, another uh, that I've been working on for a very long time on Swami Vivekananda and uh, the relevance of his teachings for the contemporary world. And uh, I need to get that book out because the conversation on Swami Vivekananda is taking off. Uh, there's some very good books uh, that have come out recently, I would especially recommend Swami Medananda's uh, Swami Vivekananda's Vedantic Cosmopolitanism. It's a really a landmark study of Swami Vivekananda's philosophy, and uh, that's work with it with which I'm also engaging. Uh, I occasionally am invited. I'm very honored to be invited to speak at Vedanta societies, and some of those talks are on YouTube. So uh, if you look look my name up on YouTube, you'll find. Uh, Talks I've given for the Vedanta Society of New York, uh, Vedanta Society of DC, uh, and a few others uh, as well. So uh, that's that's where a lot of my work is. And uh, yeah, but I, I like to post a lot of things on academia.edu because uh, sometimes people don't always have easy access to the books in which those were published. Sometimes those books go out of print. Um, academic books can sometimes also be quite expensive. Uh, but uh, if you can... Uh, you know, find uh, something that I am legally able to post on academia.edu, uh, that's a good place for people to, to access those things. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening.